So hello, everyone. Welcome to the Product-Led Podcast. This is going to be a really interesting episode where we're going to dig into Chargebee specifically and go through how they have evolved their go-to-market strategy over the years. And so we're really going to be focusing on this main topic of how to straddle product-led and sales-led motions together. And Chris, the CEO and co-founder of Chargebee, is going to go through some of those lessons and mistakes that they've made in building this motion to ultimately drive fast growth for Chargebee. So Chris, it is an absolute pleasure having you here. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, What gets you excited? Because I'm uh, on video with you and you, you're really excited guy. <laughs> I'm excited to, to go into this with you too. Uh, thank you. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just happy to, every time we actually talk about our own journeys, right? This yes. uh, journey of reflecting on all the mistakes and then going through that is a very interesting process. Either it's sometimes it's cathartic, right? Sometimes it's also joyful because you think about all the mistakes and then the, there is certain joy in actually knowing that, okay, we have progressed a lot and that's good, right? And then there is also this whole sad, little bit of sadness of like, I wish I could actually claim that time back. Right? Yes. Because we talk about this as we have built a beautiful 10-year-old company, seven-year-old company in 10 years, right? The three years that we lost somewhere, like three or four years, who knows, right? Yeah. You cannot claim it back. So there is that a little bit of that sadness, but it's uh, it has been a very good journey of learning all through this experimentation. Awesome. So I have used Chargebee uh, with one of my clients way back. Absolutely loved it. There was really good insights that helped me understand that specific subscription business. So I'm curious to hear like, what got you specifically into solving this problem of really helping uh, subscription companies understand their business much, much better? Sure. Uh, we started in 2011, four founders, all of us from engineering background. And my co-founders come from product building background. And uh, yeah. it is actually not an idea first company. It's a team first company. So we just wanted to learn how to build a good product company. And then we quit, started the company, even incorporated a few months earlier than actually starting up. And then we said, okay, which problem do we solve after quitting our jobs? Right? So for us, it was a means to this. And then we did not raise capital initially. We bootstrapped the company for the first year and a half or two years. That was Our plan was to just bootstrap the company. We just did yeah. not know that you could actually build with other people's money. Like We were just naive. Right? I'm talking about 2011. Yeah. And we had 10 years of experience before starting. And uh, we just picked the problem. We said, okay, this is our context. We come from B2B world. We understand SaaS is taking off. This was way back in 2011. And every company should not be building their own infrastructure stack for a bunch of problems. And this is mm -hmm. one of the problems that we said was like, okay, so there are, there are companies like Zora that is doing this in enterprise, but there are very few equivalents in the early stage. Why not start solving the problem is how we started. And that's why we also went into a self-service mode of building an API first product, putting the sandbox mm -hmm. out there and all of that happened because we focused on smaller customers, which is what our initial focus was. And I, th I think, to be honest, right, we all start thinking, can we just make enough money as a bootstrapper, right? Can we make enough money that I can yeah. actually make some salaries? Just the ambition, right? And then your ambition yeah. grows with the progress of the company is what happened to us as well. And I think with every stage of growth of the company and understanding of the problem, our ambition of like how big the problem is has grown. Like today, almost every, there is nobody who actually thinks like, I don't want subscription revenue. Like, like, of yeah. course, everybody would love subscription revenue. And right. we did not actually think that the problem actually was going to be this relevant. Because if we go to the early Hacker News uh, website, when we actually tried launching, I think we've all seen this, right? All this is the same movie of even people criticizing Dropbox, right? So similar story of like people saying, eh, why do we need this? This is a small feature. I can build this myself. Yeah. Was 
and and i did not even have compelling arguments to argue against it right we were that naive but all we know is like this problem exists let's go solve it is how we got yeah. into it and yeah uh, we have been learning <laughs> oh, I love that approach. So very similar kind of background startup as actually Hotjar. Uh, that was like one uh, another team as well. We've had on the product Ed podcast where David, the the founder, like they just kind of left all their consulting <laughs> opportunities and other right. things. They had a good amount of experience, and they decided, okay, let's go. With, we have the right team. Let's now figure out the right product. Uh, Says so interesting. And then you mentioned the whole focus on you noticed that the enterprise players uh, were solving some of these really unique problems in that space. And you decided, okay, we need to make this more accessible. So yeah. Interesting for those who are listening, something to point out here, if you're thinking about starting a business, really finding that team first is is massive. It's going to set you forward so many steps in the process. And then the other part too is if you're looking at the enterprise, um, trying to find out what are they doing because there is a big chance <laughs> some of those smaller businesses need help with the same problems, but they just don't have that go-to-market strategy to service them. So that's the beginning. What was next? You mentioned you were like two years into it. You decided, okay, we need to like put the pedal on the gas when you raise funds. What did that whole kind of like flow look like for those next like two years? I wish I could actually say that, yeah, just now we are ready to scale, we raise money. No, we yeah. were afraid that we are going to run out of money, we actually raise money, right? That's it. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <Different approach. laughs> like it. yeah. uh, no, it's just being practical about it. So basically, you just don't want to die as a company, right? That's yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, no, we Axel found us, and it was, uh, you know, we felt that they were actually challenging us and helping us think first principles about this, right? Because Axel had already invested in Braintree and Braintree had subscriptions as a module, Stripe was coming out of the woodwork and they had subscriptions and they wanted to know, is this going to be a feature? Will there be a product and a category eventually or is it just going to be a feature part of something else, right? So Axel really helped us think through that really well by asking some first principles questions about why are even people discovering you? Why are you relevant? Who is the buyer and all of that? And that was super helpful. Uh, so we raised capital. Once we got on, got decided that we are going to raise VC money, then we said, okay, now we have to commit to ensuring that we are building something that will scale. Right. So that alignment was super helpful internally for us. And still, it took us uh, the few years, first few years to actually figure out product market fit. The first four, four and a half years was spent in trying to find the product market fit. I call this a wandering phase of uh, having like a couple of hundred customers who were paying customers. And still, we were not sure how do we find more of them? Because there was a subset of that customers who actually we wanted more of. And we did not uh, do something. Like in hindsight, I wish we had spent more time understanding the subset of customers where we could actually, whom we could scale with. And there were a lot of agencies and others who were actually using us as recurring invoicing system, not actually a recurring billing system. And that distinction was not clear for us. So once we found that, then we were able to, we were ready to scale. And that's when we actually eventually raised from Inside Venture Partners. That was the first round we raised through data. Till that time, it was a story and the founders and then a bet on the founders is yes. how we would put it. And thankfully, we had like a patient set of investors who allowed us to make enough mistakes to get figure this out before we were ready to scale. Awesome. 
And so I want to touch on that part too, or dig deeper. How did you find and identify some of those really great customers? Because it's like parsing out the signal versus noise. So like you do that's really common, especially with product at companies. You have that free model now. It's like, whoa, there's more people signing up. And it's also more noise sometimes. And so it can be really challenging to look through that. I know there's a lot of common ways, like, you know, which ones stick around longest, but that's not always the best case. And then you could also go through the other spectrum of like, where are the biggest accounts? That's not always the best way to look at it either. And so it could be usage, but maybe that's telling you a different story too. Because like LinkedIn had this issue where it's like, hey, if we really build this for the power users, the power... forget they had a specific word for them. They were just like these master networks, networkers that just like connected everyone. <laughs> and it was like, that's actually not the average person that we're going for here. So I'm curious, how do you identify your best customers? Hmm. So for us, we were building a product that was going to enable nonlinear scaling. Like you don't want to throw more people at this problem and you should have this problem that I want a lot of customers, but I don't want to do this manually, right? Because it's an automation solution. Where we tripped up initially was uh, having freemium plan to say something like oh, 10 invoices free a month, right? And people who are actually buying something like fresh books for invoicing were like agencies, uh, which were always serving 10 customers a month and clients a month. Yep. And they were actually finding us thinking, oh, it's a free replacement for a $15 product. And they were picking us against a $15 product with no intention of ever paying because they always wanted to stay under 10 clients, right? Or their ability to scale was always going to be through people. And they were actually discovering us and they were also coming in, signing up. That is activation, like signups doubled, activation doubled. And you are chasing. And then the request from those customers into the product was, oh, can I change my invoice template? Oh, FreshBooks has this feature. Why don't you actually give this particular invoice template customization feature? Like yeah. That's when we realized to three, six months into this that, like, what did we actually do by actually doing this premium tier? Then we shut that down, grandfathered prices for all existing customers, and then we had to move on because all yeah. the metrics look like they're all moving in the right direction, but you realize that it starts from the right customers. In hindsight, what we learned is we will win only when our customers win. Our true North Star metric for us, the value metric for us was going to be the TPV, our, the ARR of our customers. If the ARR, if the whichever customers have the recurring revenue that's going to continuously compound and grow, they were the ones that are going to get the most value out of our product and they were going to demand the right features from the product. And we will also have pricing power to deliver the value and get the value from the customers. I think getting that value metric and then the North Star metrics right was the single biggest moment of revelation for us uh, to find the right customers. And I guess for finding those right customers, what was the, the biggest challenge like around that whole part, finding and identifying them for you? Good one. See, we built it with inbound marketing, right? Completely yep. and mostly SEO, SEO, right? And we were not building this from the Valley. So which means that like a lot of us in either in India or Europe, we're all dependent on, or anybody outside the Valley, we are dependent on like taking Google tags and figuring out, can I get enough people to sign up for the product, right? That's yep. the approach. Now, see, customers like Freshworks are the marquee customers for us. Like that's the perfect customer yeah. where they were like already sub million when they came into charge. We like early millions, single product, and then all the way through, we were able to support them now through a IPO journey of four hundred million dollars plus with thirteen different products. Now that's actually the ideal template of a customer. Like today, Calendly is also a charge B customer, and then there are many others like that. Now the problem was sifting this signal from the noise and. Yeah. As a first-time founder, how do you learn to 
have the conviction to say, I'm going to say no to a lot of these leads that are coming in and these are not qualified yeah. leads, right? Just understanding the basic concepts like who's my ICP and deliberately sitting down and having that conversation to build conviction around, okay, I definitely want to sell to this type of customer. Yep. Like the even the simple concepts like the gray, green, amber, red of uh, ICP and knowing yep. which ones I really want to stretch. Where looks like, sounds like basic, and uh, which is now taught in a lot of accelerators and all of that. Mm-hmm. But we were making that mistake of actually not having enough conviction to say no to a lot of customers, right? Which means that they look like good customers, they come in and they start using the product, but you end up listening to a lot of them and that uh, distracts you from who you should really, really focus on to get more of them. But I think honing in on the North Star metric was the key. Even pricing, you can get it right because pricing is like a roadmap. You can continuously iterate on pricing to get it right for your future customers. But getting the North Star metric and paying attention to the right metrics was, uh, again, one of the breakthroughs for us to know who's the right customer. Totally. And how do you decide, like, here's our North Star metric. This is what it is. Because, I mean, there's lots of books on it. There's lots of different ideas and opinions. But it does still seem like one of those things that's a bit different for every company of like how they come towards like, this is the right metric. And there's a lot of ways if it's the wrong one, could lead you in some bad directions too. (laughs) It's it's, um, something like if you take the very simplest example of a help desk, right? You could... Say your North Star metric should actually be tracking if the customer is creating more tickets. If my customers are getting more tickets, like mm-hmm. and is it volume growing and how are they actually managing it? Versus actually your value metric for the same customers is actually number of seats, right? Okay. Which is traditional for most help desk systems. Mm-hmm. So your value metric would be different from your North Star metric and making sure that yeah. you actually understand the differentiation matters. Because if you say, I want to charge my customers based on number of tickets, like nobody can predict it and they don't want to pay you by number of tickets. And your job is actually to reduce the number of tickets and not yes. try to have an orthogonal expectation that I'll help the customer grow the number of tickets. No, right? right. <laughs> so I think just paying deliberately pressure testing your own ideas of like your initial instincts of like, how do I want to charge the customer and then putting mm-hmm. out the pricing. Pressure testing this repeatedly to understand, am I aligned with my customer's success will generally help you find that. Then that helped us example. I agree. So <laughs> one part of like, okay, how many tickets? Uh, if Do I go for the 20,000 ticket option or the 10,000 one? It's really hard to understand like how much you're going to be paying. If that's the case, that's obviously why a ton of SaaS companies move towards something like where you mentioned that value metric of the seats. And I think maybe too many companies abuse that. <laughs> it's not always the right <laughs> option. But right. thinking through that, how did you create that alignment between your North Star metric and value metric? Sure. So we used to charge based on like number of invoices initially, right? What we realized was one, like when we looked at who are our ideal customers, right? Our customers were going through the journey of selling, like figuring out how do I sell to more customers? But the most of them who are actually finding product market fit are just over product market fit. The number of invoices was really not compounding or growing fast, right? But their revenue was growing when they were able to move up market or they are able to crack Mm -hmm. something to grow, right? So that was how they were actually more successful. And where we were not able to make more money was by pricing it based on invoices and our ability to actually justify feature-based pricing. It was not helping us compensate for the churn, right? Eventually, the only way you actually build a good product is you build more features for your most successful customers and the customers consume the right features 
and you are able to grow your revenue where your net retention rate is above 120 125 percentage on a net dollar retention basis but that has to compensate for your churn in the entry level segment right so the, there is a trap and paradox out there because you start with your smb customers and you want to move up market with your customers the hardest problem is getting this part right so we made enough mistakes but the good news out there for everybody who is an early stage founder is you don't have to get it right right if there is any lesson from our journey we price based on number of invoices to say okay 100 invoices are uh, $99 and they used to have like 10 invoices extra or 100 invoices extra for like $10 additional or something like that right i even forgot that and then we realized it was actually very hard uh, decision and scary decision when we wanted to test the price to say hey we want to actually deliberately make it generous premium but we want to make it premium as a product but how do we ensure that we straddle this complexity of having a premium product but with a premium pricing and also align ourselves as a long long term partner with the customers can if we put a percentage of pricing out there and our overage charges will it scare our customers will anybody buy the product right it was really scary because we are almost bracing for like no sale like when we actually put it out there but you know what when new customers actually looking at you they are actually looking at you from with fresh eyes to evaluate you from the lens of is there value in this product why are they priced higher and they really want to ask like what am i missing tell me more about your product right and that actually happened and that's like a magical moment when you realize that okay it's actually not that scary now i can actually even build value pro- so even if what happens what's the worst case somebody comes in they evaluate you right and they actually like your product you have a technical win and by the time you actually are having a business conversation about the pricing and let's say they walk away at least you learned something that okay this pricing doesn't work now what is the discount i need to offer where it actually makes sense for the customer because you priced it high or you learned like i cannot sell enough volumes of this to compensate for like my price at this plan or what value do i need to just build into this plan to justify the price right these are the only three things that you basically learned so we used to iterate on pricing like little bit every almost every 3 to 6 months like the, the micro what is a micro experiments as we call it are things like just trying the monthly and quarterly annual pricing or even half yearly pricing on the website introduce currencies into the website just to yep. see if changes the perception little things like that are micro experiments and then the macro experiments are the ones where you actually work towards launching a new pricing almost like every 6 months or a year right so that's how we iterated on the pricing to find our product market fit Yeah. and so when we aligned our pricing with our customer success which is our their revenue and yeah. internally we index as a percentage of the customer's revenue but today we are able to have like once you build enough features then you have enough flexibility to make sure that you are delivering the right value for the right customers at the right stage where we were able to say okay sub 1 million customers cannot like probably will not be using netsuite so which means that we can ignore yeah. certain plans for them completely but then bundle netsuite into the enterprise plan don't worry about including netsuite into the this plan but yep. a very early stage customer don't doesn't have an accountant but the one somebody who is actually crossing the half a million dollar mark probably uses a quickbooks if the founder actually configures a quickbooks they definitely mess it up they then don't even bother offering that instead yep. put it in the 299 dollar plan to see if actually the accountant sets it up right so continuously experimenting on your feature packaging and pricing and aligning the north star metric with continuously like making some of those leap of faith decisions where i would say founders need to really make help make those decisions because you don't expect your vp of sales to independently make the decision while yeah. they will we would want to do it it requires that support and it's a joint ownership of the decision and if we actually do it 
is how we were able to discover that. Okay. So you mentioned like how you kind of like went about the North Star metric. And I'm curious to hear like what is your current North Star metric and what was it in the past? I know you mentioned like it was number of invoices, if I remember correctly, but yeah, what is it now? Total process volume. Total process volume is how much annual recurring revenue of our total customers are we processing. Now it's getting close to the $10 billion mark and on like 100% year on year. And that includes across all the segments of customers that we serve. Okay, awesome. And why do you choose that as the metric? The total process volume is a compound metric of all of our customers and our customers, like that's all their ARR. So we are aligned with the revenue of our customers. So our pricing is a proxy for, like actually our customers' revenue is a proxy for our pricing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, do you charge a percentage of that? Or how does actually no we no. we have pricing bundles where we charge a fixed platform fees on a yep. monthly or annual basis. So it could be premium or a two ninety nine dollar plan. There is even a middle plan like you can graduate from a premium to a ninety nine dollar plan to a two ninety nine. So all of that exists. Internal indexing is its percentage of the revenue because the size of your customer determines the complexity of what they also bring to the table and what they expect. Like a, a company at a ten million going towards a twenty million generally. And implementing Salesforce integration has more complexity in the implementation and ongoing maintenance of what they want versus a small customer who's not using any of this is much more simpler. So yes, so it's aligned with the percentage of the revenue of the customers internally. I love this. Like I think you really nailed it for the total processing volume. Now, why do you think pricing is so important? Or maybe actually let's reframe this. Why do you think having this North Star metric is so important to being product-led as a business? See, pricing is a filter for who finds you attractive, right? So whatever the price you put, there is always somebody, as long as there is a demand in the market, which you cannot manufacture, like which is hard to manufacture, right? (laughs) You will find somebody, but pricing acts as a good filter for like somebody looking at you to say, okay, is this for me, right? And they either qualify you or disqualify you. And I think that's why pricing becomes such an important factor in who you build for eventually. Right. Do you think it goes beyond that though, as far as like qualifying people? Because like, let's say you picked, well, actually maybe one of your previous ones, let's say today your metric, North Star metric was still number of invoices generated. How would that have held you back internally as a business if that was still the case? Mm. Today, if you look at the most successful businesses of like from our own customers, the most successful ones are the ones who are able to do product-led growth through like where they are able to sell, do self-service customers. And then at some point, every one of them also try to figure out now this one engine is working really well for self-service yeah. small ticket customers. Now I would like to be able to move up market, which is a very natural motion. And then they bring in the sales model to sell like $10,000, $20,000 customers. And then they move up market. If we only priced based on number of invoices, like the most successful ones will move into that model where they are going to like only generate like 100 invoices for them to make, let's say, $10 million or like I'm just making up a number, right? And our success criteria is actually not aligned, right? While they are actually building something massive, what the expectation of us as a company, service provider, actually for a solution like us is there are functional requirements that goes directly into the product. There are a lot of non-functional things where we are able to heavy lift and support our customers with more and more success. A case in point for somebody like a Freshworks, which went through IPO is supporting them through like the complete overhaul of, let's say, their ERP from, let's say, a QuickBooks to uh, NetSuite. 
right? They did not have to lift a finger. And we, as a principle, matter of principle, we don't like to charge professional services for like the nickel and dime, right? We don't want to right. charge for like everything that they want. So which means that establishing long-term partnership was super helpful when you get your pricing right. If yeah. we had gone back to number of invoices, that actually puts you in misalignment with respect to everything that your customer wants. In this case, like SOX compliance, GDPR, like yeah. all the compliance requirements, whether it's like working with their PwC, like PricewaterhouseCoopers to actually say, let me support you through your audit requirements because like this is revenue and a system of record. Let me figure out and work with your auditor to do it. It has nothing to do with your product, but I'm actually yeah. comfortable saying yes to everything that the customer wants to make them successful because we are aligned on like long-term pricing, right? So okay. it gives you the freedom to be able to say yes to your most successful customers more often yep. than worrying, worrying about like, can I afford to even do it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the reason I, I kind of pulled out and like asked you the inverse of that question too is because... Well, you pointed out beautifully, uh, which is just the whole focus on how do you create that alignment across an entire organization and getting people all involved in the user success? Because I have this one like one liner of, you know, what does it mean to be product led? I always say it and everyone on the podcast is going to be like, oh, this one again. But it's like <laughs> your end user success will eventually become your success. And when okay. you lead with that metric of like, okay, total processing volume, you're completely in lockstep alignment with your customer and you're going to move in that same direction. And when some of those, yeah, you know, unique opportunities come up or unique challenges more likely, <laughs> it's yeah. going to be like, okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this NetSuite migration, we're going to help you move this over because we're in this for the long term to help you increase your total processing volume, which hopefully that's one of your goals too. Uh, right. <laughs> business. Yeah. I think uh, they're just imagining the conversation with the customer. The, your most successful customers generally can tell you a lot about like what should be your hypothesis. Like yeah. I'm, I'm telling all of this in hindsight, right? So don't take it wrong where like it's not advice, but I just wish some of these things, we were able to do it much earlier to right. sit down and have these conversations with some of the most successful customers to understand this. Like for example, one of my biggest regrets is not do having this conversation with somebody like a Soylent who was our customer, right? Yeah. Soylent, were, like everybody knew about them when they were like super successful, especially as the health drink, right? Either you loved it or you hated it. But there was like yeah. amazing PR and they took off like a rocket ship where I found him on Twitter when John Coogan, one of the, the founder and CTO, was looking for a solution. And in 45 minutes, I could actually onboard him completely into Chargebee, right? All the way from saying, hey, John, like there's an API. You want to play with this product? And he came in, signed up, and he was like, okay, can you show me to my ops person a bunch of things? I demonstrated and then configured all of that on the Zoom call, right? I don't yeah. know if it was even Zoom call at that time. Like all of this. And within a few years, right, they just like beautifully grew. And then the number of things that they asked for, everything we kept delivering. And then yeah. there was a particular point where this was an e-commerce business that was thinking about their success very differently. Like because they were acquiring all the customers' digital channel, the yeah. next level of unlock for Soylent was to go to Whole Foods and Walmart in the world, to their stores. Right. We were not aligned to enable them to succeed to go to stores. So naturally, at some point, we were going to part ways where their long-term success and ours was misaligned. Either we had to figure out how do I deliver, continue delivering value to them, or we had right. to accept the churn, and it actually hurts you more, especially as an early-stage company, because your biggest customer is leaving, right? Yeah. And so things like that tends to happen. But yeah, of course, you want to continue building with them, but like it. The, the hindsight teaches you things that you wish you did like much earlier 
Like right. I wish I had like a two-year runway with Soylent to understand where they wanted to go and either align the roadmap or like figure out or accept that that churn is going to happen. One of these two would have happened much earlier. Exactly. And so I want to get the starting and kind of current go-to-market strategies, just so people can know like the beginning and not ends, but you know, where you are right now. So what did that look like at the very beginning? Were you like completely product-led? Was it, you know, just you, the only way you could buy the product is through like a, a demo or something like that. What did that look like for the very starting of Chargebee? Sure. Through the first few hundred paying customers, most of it was self-service. Like okay. where the customer can come in pre-sandbox and we still continue to have that. Like thankfully, once you have that DNA, it's actually much easier to move up market rather than moving down market. Right, okay. to preserve that, right? So we still have the same self-service motion that continues to be there where you can come in, explore yeah. the product in Sandbox, put the card in, go live, and you can just continue to cross the threshold of the freemium limit and automatically switch over to any of the paid plans, right? And right. we have customers who, have, who started with zero through like a few hundred thousand dollars in ACV, like through this journey, and yeah. that builds you conviction over time, right? So that's one. The second part of this product-led, right, where I think you beautifully articulated in one of the blogs, is it's not to be misunderstood as no sales, right? So from the beginning, yeah. we have always had what we call as the assisted buying model, right? It's actually not even pushy sales. Instead, you actually yeah. are, there is a buyer and there is a hand raiser who's saying, hey, I think I have this problem. That resonates with me, right? And they are exploring the product. Right. Now, how do you use these signals in the product to actually assist in the buying process is how we look at it as the selling model. Yep. So that happened for quite some time for us till we got to the first few million dollars in revenue. But yep. what you realize is beyond the first 5 million or like getting to the 10, 20 million, you do the Excel math, you realize that the number of units you have to sell actually yeah. gets harder, right? Especially if you want to like go for something like 100% on year growth, right? Now, what we realized was we have to then straddle this and complement that with the upmarket move, which included not just the product capabilities to support larger customers, but the entire GTM machinery to support it, right? That included setting up what we call as the pre-sales engine. Solution engineering had to be built to complement the salespeople. And the beautiful thing about this complementary aspect of having self-service and the pre-sales is suddenly the pre-sales people actually feel like they have a lot of legal blocks in hand and they all they have to do is just go and ask the customer, okay, tell me about your problem. Let yes. me put all the pieces together and then show you how you can actually do this for larger customers, right? Suddenly, you can build the tools necessary to do that. Like a case in point is we built this feature called Time Machine inside Chargebee yep. where you can go back in time and then you can go forward right to the current time to generate all your invoices to, back to uh, know the accuracy of will it actually mimic and generate all the right invoices and will right. it make all the API calls? Now, imagine giving this in the hands of a solution consultant who can actually create a wow moment for a customer they are selling to, right? Yeah. It, it feels like magic when you think about your product assisting and giving superpowers to your salespeople and your solution consultants. And I think there is this whole DNA aspect to this that you want to preserve in the company, right? Even as you continue to have the pull of the revenue that actually pulls you up market, Figuring this out, I think, is a hard one. But I think coming from this world generally makes it much, much more easier to build on that. Totally. And how did you evolve the way you structured your teams? So 
a lot of the people that we'll talk to on the podcast will go through like, hey, we were sales led and then we wanted to go down market and we had to do all these different changes. I think it's much easier this way. <laughs> well, we'll see. But uh, like starting self-serve and then kind of going up and adding on layers uh, is because you have that base. Uh, which is a really important part of this. So you talked a little bit about this, but did you have like, you know, completely self-serve team and then there was like sales assisted team and then there was like high touch, like enterprise kind of accounts. How do you divide that up internally? And not just right now, but like, what did it look like in the early days when it was like, hey, we have this self-serve motion, it's working, but like to hit our numbers, it's just, we clearly have to do something else to kind of land and expand it to these accounts. Right. I think um, one of the biggest learnings I think I earlier mentioned is data segmentation because yeah. I wish I had learned that much earlier. And thankfully, we actually applied it a lot more subsequently, right? which is we segmented our company by internally understanding. Like, So we did not align with Gartner definition of SMB mid-market and enterprise. Instead, we created our own labels internally where yeah. when we were comfortable selling to, let's say, the 0 to 1 million and 1 to 10 million ARR customers, like their journey, and initially, that was a focus. And we then started labeling them as like premium customers and startup customers, like the ones who found product market fit. And then the ones we were who were actually crossing the 3 million threshold, we started calling them scale-up customers, 3 to 25 million. And we also kept expanding every year. We started resegmenting this data to align with our product maturity and our ability to sell to the customers. So today, we look at it as Startup, scale up and grow. The startup customers are zero to three million. Within the zero to three million, there is a self-serve motion and then the assisted buying motion. Then the three to 25 million is the uh, sales process where it's actually like between one week to 45 days of sales process, where the company is between three to 25 million, reasonable amount of complexity, but it's not too complex. And that's one. And then what we call as a growth segment is our actual enterprise segment from 25 million through a 500 million or a $1 billion companies. Like customers like Toyota, BMW, right? They have a very different buying motion. Like, so which means that we have a different caliber on, and methodology of sales. Like we used to do follow the challenger sales for, so I think this is one of my biggest learnings, right? You do not want to dismiss some of the sales methodologies and the, yeah. the tried and tested methods, right? It's like saying, oh, I don't like managers, so I want to go for flat hierarchy in a company, right? Like, most companies generally, it's holocracy is not a solution, right? It's a cool right. experiment for somebody else. But for you, generally, there is a merit in actually, you're not building a company to actually experiment with managerial structures, right? Either hierarchy right. is invisible or visible. The same way, uh, dismissing the sales methodologies uh, for me as a software engineer, like did not look right. So we used to follow challenger sales as yeah. a methodology initially. Then we said, okay, now that was good for sales process where you are immediately going and closing a sale within the first 30 to 45 days. But you know what? That fails in concentrated sales model that's needed for larger customers. So then we actually implemented mid-pick, right? So mid-pick as a sales model, and then you actually think about like consultative sales model for larger customers, but you want to stay consistent for all segments. So which means that we actually took the same mid-pick model, but a shorter version of that for like earlier segments, and you continue to right. adapt, adopting that while preserving the uh, the self-serve motion where you want to create the right spiffs and incentives for salespeople to support launch plan because it's in at odds with that uh, contradiction. Mark Robert J, CRO, former CEO of HubSpot, talked about it. He said one of the biggest learnings for them at, the, at that time when they started selling premium of CRM was the sales initially did not want to sell that. Right? They wanted to, they ignored customers who actually wanted premium 
every time yeah. they would talk to them so the way he actually changed was sell to the customer i will actually pay you on everything even if you sell it smaller and you will get yeah. the upside on the larger as they grow with you suddenly sales people wanted to sell even those accounts and that was a light bulb moment right so some of these paradoxes and in incentives that exist in the yeah. product led to the sales led that needs to be unpacked and solved but if we crack it it feels like magic when you are able to have all of these where every lead that comes in the product yeah. also qualifies while the sales person is also trying to qualify and then you actually match this data and then enable them to sell better there's so much i want to unpack there so <laughs> there's the hands off as well or maybe it's like signals that you're looking at as well from like the self serve people come in the premium model what does that look like internally for your sales assistant kind of motion like for them to decide like hey i'm going to reach out to this person but i'm not going to bother with this person like how how do they kind of decide that to use <laughs> an internal metric is it a little bit of manual kind of like decision making there or what does that look like i think i can talk about a particular experiment that is that is completely at odds with the marketing what what marketers would say as strict no no which is they talk about like yeah. single call to action right everywhere what we interestingly tested was we wanted we had a hunch that there are people who are browsing the website yeah. who like to be sold to because like we had a hunch that finance people are actually browsing our website if they sign up it's going to be very hard for them to figure out how to put the lego blocks together because our product yeah. is like a lot of lego blocks it's powerful but unless you have a developer uh, or operations person or a product manager coming right. in they won't know how to put it together but they would like to be the finance person may want to say this is my problem show it to me right how it actually yeah. works and we said sign up for free but under every cta we also said like show me a demo yeah right just book a demo and everywhere where there's a sign up for the sandbox we also tested this show me a demo and very clearly we found that these are two different personas who are actually clicking on these two different buttons mm. automatically filtered and you can take them through a different journey right and then what well, the moment we actually realized it we started playing that inside the website product landing pages everywhere because a finance person is happy to actually say call me here is my number right? right because there are very few conversations that they are having and they rarely become the first person to sign up but they are dealing with something else that's very different from what the founder cto or a ceo is actually dealing with right the moment you actually like segment the behaviors and then find out who likes to be sold to who is actually browsing the product that taught us something the second one was that maybe accidental signups that are happening immediately deliberate friction inside the product is also a good thing right yep. introduce deliberate friction like a page where you say what is your role in the company right initially you want to remove as much friction as possible but later on it's also helpful to introduce friction to learn a little bit more about who is the user and where do you prompt to find that information that taught us something like okay so there is a type of user who is coming in accidentally signing up but that yep. person is going to say let me talk to a consultant right even simple things like talk to a consultant versus talk to a salesperson yeah. makes a difference depending on who is the person right so continuously treating this as a, a stream of experiments mm. uh, helped us understand some of these personas and then uh, wire all of this information back into your crm system and make sure yeah. that train the sales team how to use these signals and uh, monitoring that was super important because like most sales people right they will all come in with their own training and baggage of like what they have yeah. done in the previous job and the moment they come in it's important to actually understand that help them understand 
like all the signals that exist that is actually mm-hmm. going to give them superpowers and teach them how to do it was a big learning for us because a founder generally wears the hat of a product manager a salesperson yeah. a consultant everything but suddenly you are putting your first few sales people without any of the support like suddenly they don't have sales enablement no training like a little bit of training and then you are hoping that they are superheroes who will just solve your problems but that's not going to happen right so yeah. just unpacking all these parts and providing that uh, air cover to help them cover for the gap before your rest of your organization matures yep. was a big learning to make this uh, motion successful yeah how do you like decide you know what the person who signs up for free is a different persona than someone who just clicks show me a demo like what was that like line of the sounds it sounds like there was something that was like whoa big aha on your ends where you just saw that you know these are completely different personas and we should treat them as such uh, and they go through their own flow and own part of the journey <laughs> well, actually this is a very interesting experiment that i did right so i was yeah. more, uh, i was in san francisco and uh, a bunch of meetings that i had lined up canceled and sitting before the computer and then i had this launched just a couple of days before this the sign up for demo yeah. and all of that and we used to have intercom to signal whether somebody is right now live inside the product like the yeah. green button and we had enabled the ability to chat immediately so one thing i started doing was any person who actually shows up in green and especially if it's a recent sign up yeah. i started trying an experiment to say if they are still browsing the website or they are inside the product what if i message them and offer to speak right so i used to say hey i'm co-founder ceo i'm looking for quick feedback are you available for just 3 minutes i have three questions to ask you right and i just ran that experiment because i was just bored in a day like i had bunch of meetings cancel yeah. and what i learned just those bunch of calls was one particular person was a director of operations in a company right and he said you know what i have this problem this problem this problem and i'm i am having all these systems and i have like 100 customers and we make like this many this much millions in revenue and yeah. everything is broken i don't know how many invoices i have not actually sent to the customers and i want this fixed right yeah. and he talked about everything as just a invoicing problem and nothing as a pricing or iteration or product market fit problem like unlike yeah. a product manager or a ceo you suddenly realize that and this person did not actually hated and did not wanted to play around with the product the problem statement on the website resonated so something clicked and then you realize that okay so there are personas of these people so picking up the phone and then talking to those people as quickly as possible yeah gave the biggest learning and you build conviction through even those qualitative conversations right you don't need 100 customers and data points to make yeah. certain decisions right just talking to two or three people helps you build the same level of conviction instead of waiting for a lot of data so for me the biggest one is like try some of those like really quick experiments like picking up the phone and talking to people or like the, the urgency with which you can actually get back to somebody and then offering to talk immediately because anyways they are browsing the product right what's the harm in talking to the founder ceo and then giving them feedback and maybe their their problem will get solved right and mm-hmm. you realize the value of this is super high in experimentation uh, especially for things like this yeah no absolutely and what were some of those questions you asked you mentioned there's three right. uh, i remember that like so how did you discover us like, yeah what's your role in the company and why did you even start looking for a solution like this right and then just open it and then tell me about your stack I did not realize yeah. that open ended question like the second question to say why did you even start looking for a thing I was so surprised when the person like 
started going into a rant about all the problems right you, <laughs> you just take notes sit and take no one notes. listens to that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then the stack was super useful as well because the moment yeah. you understand the stack you know which integrations you have which integrations you have to build and what yeah. is the sensitivity price sensitivity of the customer like if somebody is actually paying for a net suite you know their price sensitivity is actually very low and right? you don't yeah. want to be positioning your 99 dollar plan for them you can start at a $599 per month or right. talk only annual pricing. It is actually possible and you know the price sensitivity of the person. And this person is a departmental buyer and not your usual founder CEO who's actually like playing around with just one developer, right? Yeah. So just understanding the stack is a signal. Just understanding the problem is a signal. Just three basic questions. Awesome. I mean, I could keep going forever. There's so many grades areas we could dig into. But I want to end with one last question because I think it'll kind of like wrap everything up. So when you think about this whole journey from 2011 all the way till now, you've played around with the go-to-market strategy a ton. You've learned to straddle both sales-led, product-led motions uh, successfully. If you were to go back in time, <laughs> what would you, with all the knowledge you have right now, what would you have done to do things differently? Wow. <laughs> so many things. Uh, the first thing think, that kind of comes to your mind like, <laughs> would have the biggest impact. The one with the the most impact, right? One is the data segmentation. Again and again comes up for me because a lot of yeah. us ignore the value of the data that we have. Like, just look deeper. All right. uh, second one was running pricing experimentation with a lot more conviction. Right? Yeah. Much earlier in the journey. It right? would have helped us make a lot more progress faster. You asked me for only one. Uh, the <laughs> Even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are a lot of them, right? The third one is deliberately prioritize growth over a lot of things, right? I come from a software engineer background, right? Yeah. And you tend to think that there is a lot of value yet to be built, and then you hesitate to actually charge enough for the customers. Right? It's common advice that everybody gives, but uh, speaking from experience, I think uh, deliberately putting a growth number out there and working backwards to solve it like a puzzle, saying, really? okay, how am I going to achieve, like go from 3 million to a 10 million, right? In six quarters, or like five quarters, whatever is the number. And then working out like how many units do I need to sell if I sell only $4,000 product, right? Or can I sell $10,000 product? What would it take for me to sell a 10,000, justify a $10,000 value? Like yeah. just thought experiments, spending more time in thought experiments like this and working, looking at it like a game and a puzzle, but with a lot more urgency is something yeah. that I wish I had done a lot more of. No, absolutely. That's great advice. I know there's a book, it's called The Road Less Stupid. <laughs> in the book, <laughs> it sounds mean, but it's literally just got a list of questions and they always recommend for any manager or CEO or anyone just going through these questions like at least once a week. And like a lot of them are, like you mentioned, like growth <laughs> questions just to kind of broadly think about that because it's so easy to just be in execution mode and just be go, 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 go. And you missed out on the, the big picture of how you could really like break down some of those big goals into bite-sized pieces. But uh, Chris, this has been a blast. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, sure. So chargeb, chargeb.com is C-H-A-R-G-E-B-E-E.com, B-E-E. And that's the same Twitter handle. My personal handle, Twitter handle is uh, CB Krish, Charlie Bravo Krish. So that's my Twitter handle. Uh, and of course, I'm at Krish at right? So if you're a prospect or a customer, I come always 
I charge fee. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you have two choices on the website, product led as well as the demo. So this is awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. And yes, I look forward to, to sharing this with everyone. Thank you so much. This was fun talking to you. Thanks so much, Chris, for having me on the call.